Well, this evening we come to the conclusion of our series and the prophecy of Micah and invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to chapter 7. We're going to be reading together verses 18 through 20. Micah chapter 7, verses 18 to 20. This is God's word. Micah writes, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And this past Monday night, a couple of our deacons had to zoom into the meeting uh, because they had the flu in their house. And John Wiggins himself had the flu, but still joined in by Zoom. And he made the comment uh, that it was his uh, Michael Jordan flu game, right, as a deacon. Uh, if, if you're not familiar with that reference, uh, he's referring to game five of the 1997 NBA Finals in which Michael Jordan played with the flu against John Stockton and the Utah Jazz and still scored 38 points uh, and one of the game, one of his you know, greatest and most memorable performances of his career, reminded me uh, of a story from this past football season. Uh, LSU has this really, really good freshman linebacker named Harold Perkins. And against Arkansas, he recorded four sacks and two forced fumbles. It was sort of a game for the record books. And after the game, uh, LSU coach Brian Kelly told the reporters uh, that uh, he had actually had the flu during the game. And he did all this with the flu and that he had thrown up before the game. And, and Brian Kelly uh, went to him uh, when he heard that he had thrown up and he said, hey, you know, MJ threw up when he had his best game of his career. And, and Harold Perkins said, who's MJ? And Brian Kelly's response was, I am so old, right? But, but when I heard it, I, I, my first thought was, who's MJ? Like, that's like asking who's Pistol Pete? right? I mean, who's Wilt? Who's Shaq? Who's Kobe? Who's LeBron? Like, who's MJ? Everyone knows who MJ is. If you don't know who MJ is, right? MJ is Michael Jordan, right? Okay, well, let's get that, get that straight. These are the, the incomparables of the game of basketball, right? You, you've bound to have heard of one of those names I just mentioned, right? These are the, the legends of the game. They can only be compared to themselves, right? No one else compares to that little group that I just mentioned. Well, in our text this evening, we're not talking about basketball players. We're talking about gods. And there's only one incomparable God, Yahweh, the Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God, the Lord of heaven and earth. Now, of course, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, uh, there's only one God, period, right? Although he does say in 1 Corinthians 8 that there are many so-called gods, right? There are false gods. There are idols. And what Micah wants us to see this evening is what distinguishes the one true God, the only God there is, right, from all other 
false gods, from every other idol. And so he asked this question, a rhetorical question, of course, who is a God like you? And the answer that is supposed, presupposed, and taken for granted is no one. No one is a God like you. Who is a God like you? Now, that question is actually a, a play on words with the, the name of, of Micah. Micah is short for Micaiah, which in the Hebrew means who is like Yah, who is like Yahweh. That's what Micah's name means, who is like Yahweh. And he closes his letter meditating upon the significance of his name. Who is a God like you? You notice back in verse 10, the enemies of God's people had asked this question, where is Yahweh? your God? That's the wrong question. The right question is Micah's question. Who is a God like you? This ending to Micah is one of the best, if not the best endings of any prophet in the Old Testament. It's rivaled only by Habakkuk, Amos, Malachi, and it's God-centeredness, it's grace-soaked, faith and hope permeated, triumphal focus. And so it is my great privilege to, to get to preach this text to you this evening. In the midst of Micah's pronouncements of, of judgment that we've been seeing throughout this book, he has given us some glimpses of grace, hasn't he? Right, we, we saw it there at the end of chapter 2, at the beginning of chapter 4, at the beginning of chapter 5, and then we saw it beginning in verse 7 of chapter 7. And now in these last few verses, he is wrapping up that hopeful message that he began there in verse seven. You remember how he de declared that despite Israel's sin, despite God's judgment, he would look to the Lord. He would wait on the God of his salvation. He had assurance that God would hear his prayers. And then in verses eight to 10, he, he confidently proclaims to his enemies and the enemies of God's people that God would be a light in his darkness. In verses 11 to 13, he celebrates that Israel will be the source of blessing to all the nations. And then in verses 14 to 17, he rejoices that the God who is sovereign over the nations would shepherd his people and would shepherd the nations through a second exodus unto salvation. And now this song of victory that began back in verse seven, it concludes with this adoration this praise to God for his incomparability. There is no God like God. He has no equal. He has no peer. He is peerless. He is incomparable. And he's incomparable in three things. First, his pardoning grace. Second, his power. And third, his promise keeping. Or if you prefer the letter F, his forgiveness, his force, and his faithfulness. But I like P. We're going to go with a P tonight. Right? The three things I want us to look at, God is incomparable in his pardoning grace, in his power, and in his promise keeping. Let's see these things from the text this evening. First, our God is incomparable in his pardoning grace. You see it there in verse 18. Micah begins by celebrating that our God is a God who forgives the sins of his people. Now, let, me just, let me just pause and say, Zechariah had to have been reading Micah chapter 7, verses 18 to 20, as he thought about his, his song that we Carl looked at this morning. We'll, we'll see that in a moment even more. But, but here, this, this note of forgiveness, 
right, that we, that we meditated on briefly this morning. It, Micah is taking that from the, the, one of the most famous passages in all the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, when God declares his name to Moses, right? His name, Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, God says to Moses. And here Micah reflects upon that truth that there is no God like God because he is a God who pardons iniquity, who passes over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. In spite of Israel's willful sin and rebellion, God is a God who pardons, who forgives. Right? This word used uh, both here and in Exodus 34 for forgive is literally the word to lift up, to carry away, to bear away. God is the God who lifts our sins off of us, who takes them away from us, who removes the crushing burden of guilt from his people. But he's also a God who passes over transgression, right? Who, who overlooks all the ways that we have resisted him and rebelled against him and turned aside from his word. What an encouragement it would have been to the, the saints in Micah's day, the people of God, the remnant, to hear of a God who pardons sins. How encouraging it should be to us to hear this good news that that there is no God like our God. He is a God who pardons iniquity, who overlooks, who passes over rebellion. And he acts this way, not sort of for every single person in some sort of indiscriminate kind of way, but he acts this way, Micah tells us, for the remnant of his inheritance. We might understand that as the remnant of the entirety of God's inheritance, the entirety of the people of Israel, not all Israel is Israel. Or it could be that Micah is saying the remnant, namely his inheritance. Either way, the point is clear that, that God has an elect people. He has a remnant. His pardoning grace is not for unrepentant unbelievers. His pardoning grace is for those who know their sin. It's not for people who don't think they've done anything wrong and therefore don't need forgiveness. Rather, it's for the elect whom God has put in their heart this knowledge of sinfulness, this humility. Those who wait, as verse 7 says, for the God of salvation. It's for those who know they need a Savior, for those who have received the grace of God to know their sinfulness, who know that they need a substitute if they are to be saved. God pardons our sin, opening our eyes to see that we are sinners, giving us that knowledge, and then providing salvation for us. And he does that through a substitute. It's so important that we, that we grasp this, this, this idea of, of God lifting our sins off of us in the Bible is associated with God lifting the crushing burden from us and placing it upon another. You go back to the book of Leviticus chapter 16. This word pardon or lift or carry or bear is used of the scapegoat. And you remember the, 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 the ceremony there where the high priest would lay both of his hands upon the head of this live goat and he would confess all the iniquities of the people of Israel. This would happen once a year on the day of atonement. And he would lay his hands on the head of this goat and then he would send the goat out into the wilderness. 
And in Leviticus, we read this, the goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land. That same word used here for pardon. As they released the goat into the wilderness, the sins that had been upon the people of God were, were graphically and, and visually transferred from, from them to the scapegoat who took them far, far away. Isaiah, the contemporary of Micah, and his magisterial prophecy declares in chapter 53 that it's the suffering servant who would bear our griefs and carry our sorrows and our iniquities. In the Passover, in Exodus chapter 12, though Moses uses a different word for passing over that, that Micah uses here, the idea is the same. Right? God passes over the sins of his people because the Passover lamb was killed in their place. And who is the true scapegoat? Who is the true suffering servant? Who is the true Passover lamb? But our Lord Jesus Christ, he is our substitute. God pardons the sins of the remnant of his possession because he punished our sins in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus was the one who carried our sins, who, who bore our sins, who lifted our sins and placed them upon himself and, and, and was punished in our place on the cross. He was born, as we've seen these past weeks, in order that he might die and be our substitute. God passes over. He overlooks the rebellious acts of the remnant of his possession. Why? Because he sent his son into the world to keep covenant perfectly and then to bear our covenant breaking on our behalf and his death on the cross. As Paul reminds us in Romans chapter three, God who had overlooked the sins of the past in the cross was making a public demonstration that he was the righteous one, but also as the just one, he would also justify those who believed in Jesus Christ. Jesus, who was the propitiation for our sins, the wrath bearer, the one who appeased God by his work on the cross. Here is Micah's vision for us. What other God is like our God who pardons sin so graciously? What other God, Micah is asking, would ever do this? Right? Now, like the, the one true God, every false God does demand perfection. Right? Every false God demands you be 100% perfect. But only the true God forgives imperfection. Now, sure, the nations have always offered sacrifices to appease their gods, hoping that, that they might appease them, hoping that their idols might pardon their failings. But false gods always operate on a principle of works and not on grace. Whether it's a made-up god with a name in Greece or Rome or Egypt, or, or whether it's a, a god like beauty or success or power or, or riches or sex or sports, whatever it might be, you either win the championship or you are nothing. You are a loser. One of the best movie quotes to this effect is from the movie Chariots of Fire when Harold Abrahams is about to, to get ready to race and he, and he says this, and now in one hour's time, I will be out there again. I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide with 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. Why? Because his God was winning and either wins or he loses. And that God does not forgive losing. But our God is a God who pardons iniquity, 
False gods, it's all demand and no deliverance. It's all expectation and anger and it's no love. But Micah here tells us, and he assures the remnant of God's inheritance that God does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. We saw it this morning, didn't we? The source of God's forgiveness is the tender mercy of God, the, the hesed love of God, the, the, the unfailing love, the steadfast love, the loving kindness of our God. Hesed, this word that you see throughout the Old Testament, it's not merely love, but it's guaranteed love. It's loyal love and, and faithful and covenant love, love that will never fail, love that will never break its promise, love that, that never ceases. This is who God is, and therefore, this is how God acts. This is what God delights in, Micah tells us. He delights in steadfast love. See, Micah is giving us a glimpse into the innermost heart of God, as it were. Yes, he shows anger for a season, for a moment, but for the remnant, his anger is the anger of a, a father disciplining the children that he loves. It's only for a moment. He doesn't delight in this, this anger. No, he delights in Hesed. He takes pleasure in Hesed far more than a Chick-fil-A employee ever meant the words. Hesed is his pleasure. It is his delight. And so with David in Psalm 30, we who are forgiven in Jesus Christ can say, his anger is but for a moment, but his favor is for a lifetime. Who is a God like our God? God is incomparable in his pardoning grace. But secondly, he is incomparable in his power. In verse 19, Micah wants to again assure God's people that his compassion will be renewed to them on the other side of their, their discipline, the suffering they're about to walk through when Assyria brings them into captivity. But what I want you to see, especially in verse 19, is that God's compassion is a powerful compassion, a strong compassion. There is no God as mighty as our God. Look at the way Micah puts it. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. Now, the Old Testament uses some glorious word pictures to describe what God does to our sins or, or with our sins. Right, in Isaiah 44, he, he says that God wipes our sins out like, like a, a dissipating fog, like a mist that disappears by 10 o'clock in the morning. In Isaiah 43, in Jeremiah 31, he says that God remembers our sins no more, right, as if God can actually forget something. But he remembers our sins no more. In Psalm 103, he says, God removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. Right? You travel east, you travel west, as far as you can go, that's how far your sins have been removed from you. In Isaiah 38, he says that, that he casts our sins behind his back. Right? God's going this way, your sins are way back there. But, but these two word pictures, right? we, we might say they are the best. As, as good and as beautiful, as incredible as all those others are, these two picture the forgiving grace of God, not merely in removing the guilt of our sins from us, but in defeating the power of our sins. How do we see that? Well, look, Micah says that God treads our iniquities underfoot. That is, he subjugates like an enemy our sins. He conquers our sins. He, he breaks the power of sin. 
so that it will not reign over us any longer. He treads it underfoot, like being trampled in the rush of a, of a crowd at a soccer game in Europe or, or horses that, that, that stampede and run over anyone in their path. Our sin is helpless before the power of God. So he treads our sins underfoot, but then Michael goes on to say, he will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea, into the deepest part of the sea, the Mariana Trench. That's where our sins are. And not only is the point of this image to say that your sins are as far away as possible, they're out of sight, they're out of mind, they're where they can never be found or dredged up again. But here Micah is evoking Exodus imagery, isn't he? You, you look back at verse 15, he's just spoken of the Exodus. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. He's already said that, that, that his, his future work is going to be like and even better than his, his past work of bringing his people out of Egypt. And now here in verse 19, he's recalling Exodus chapter 15, the song that God's people sang after they had been rescued from Egypt, delivered through the Red Sea, when God destroyed and overthrew Pharaoh. And his forces. Listen to Exodus 15. The people saying this, Yahweh is a warrior. Yahweh is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army, he is cast into the sea. The choicest of his officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deeps cover them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, Yahweh, is majestic in power. Your right hand, Yahweh, shatters the enemy. And Micah is saying that God is going to do the same thing to our sins that he did to Pharaoh and his army back in the book of Exodus. Now, here's what's amazing about this, is that already in the Old Testament, already the Exodus event is being seen as a type, as a foreshadowing of our liberation from the enslavement to sin. That's not just something that happens in the New Testament when Jesus comes. Already, here in Micah, we are seeing the prophets of God look back on the Exodus and say, yes, that was a, a temporal, physical deliverance from slavery. But you know what? That deliverance from slavery actually points us to something even greater. Our deliverance from sin. The same power that God exerted when he brought you out of Egypt is the power that he's going to exert to deliver you from your sin. There is no God like our God, who rescues us not only from the guilt of sin, the penalty of sin, but the power of sin. And didn't we see that this past year as we looked at Romans chapter 6, that the way that God rescues us from the power of sin is by uniting us with his son, Jesus Christ. In Christ, we saw that we've been freed from sin. We're no longer its slaves. We have a new master. We are slaves of God and slaves of righteousness. God through Christ has redeemed us from every lawless deed. He has freed us from all of our enemies, sin and Satan included. Isn't that what Zechariah was singing about in, in his song? As we saw last weekend this morning, he's re redeemed us from all of our enemies so that we might serve him in righteousness and holiness all of our days. You see, it's not merely that God forgives us. But it's also that, that God enables us by his Holy Spirit to walk in holiness, to obey his law, to form new habits, to stop sinning in those areas where you have sinned and sinned and sinned. God gives that grace. Now, it doesn't come immediately. It may never come in this life in different areas. But we believe that God breaks the power of canceled sin 
as Charles Wesley sings it in his hymn, hymn, O for a Thousand Tongues to Sing. In Jesus Christ, we are able to walk in newness of life more and more throughout our lives because our God is incomparable, not just in pardoning grace, but in power. Well, finally, and more briefly, because again, this is where you think Zechariah had to have been reading Micah. Our God is incomparable in his promise-keeping. Look at verse 20. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Just like Zechariah did, Micah goes back to the covenantal roots of God's forgiving grace when God promised to be a God to Abraham and to his seed after him. When he promised to be present with him, to be a God to him, to give him a place and a people and to always be there with him. God is a God who makes promises and who keeps those promises. And Micah banks his hope on the fact that God has sworn an oath and will keep his word. You remember in the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, the author of the Hebrews brings these things together likewise, just like Micah does. He says, look, God desiring to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose. They have the promise of God. God also interposed with an oath. He swore an oath by himself, the author of the Hebrews reminds us. So that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope that is set before him. You see, Micah is saying the same thing. Look, we have the faithfulness, the hesed love of God that he swore to Jacob, to Abraham, to our fathers from the days of old. And the same God who made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is our God through Jesus Christ. It's Micah's God and it's our God. And therefore we can bank on the exact same faithful promise-keeping God that Micah did. Jesus Christ, the only begotten of the Father. How does John put it? Full of Amet and Hesed, faithfulness and steadfast love, grace and truth. John chapter one, coming from these two very words. God is consistent, even when we are inconsistent, right? God is faithful, even when we're unfaithful. He's reliable, even when we are unreliable. He remembers his covenant, no matter how forgetful we are of that covenant. Our God is incomparable in his promise keeping. So how are we to respond to this incomparable God, to this glorious text? Well, let me give you three quick A's. Adoration, assurance, and announcement. This is our application. This is our response, right? Adoration. Again, as we saw this morning, because our God is incomparable, we must worship him and praise him and thank him for what he's done for us. Listen to the sixth verse of, O worship the king. O measureless might, ineffable love, while angels delight to him you above, the humbler creation, though feeble their lays, with true adoration shall lisp to thy praise. Now, ineffable technically means unspeakable, right? Too awesome, too majestic to even speak about, when clearly Micah is speaking about it. Right? So there's a sense in which this isn't ineffable, right? but the depths of God's pardoning, hesed love, his covenant faithfulness, they are far more wonderful than Micah or we can ever begin to plumb. And therefore, all we can do is speak rhetorical questions in praise and adoration to God. Who is a God like you who pardons, 
who has power over sin, who is a faithful promise keeper. Oh, come, let us adore him. So adoration, but also assurance. It's one thing to agree with everything I've said in this sermon, with everything that Micah says, intellectually. Right? But it's another thing to believe these things to be true for you, to apply them to yourself. John Calvin calls it the, the true logic of religion. Right? That, that is, when, when we are persuaded that God is indeed incomparable in pardon, pardoning grace and in power and in promise keeping because he is inclined by nature to mercy and grace. He delights in steadfast love. But when we take those truths and we apply them to our own peculiar benefit, when we say, as God is by nature merciful, I shall therefore know and find him to be merciful to me. That's the logic of true religion. That's, that's the truth taken home. Maybe you've heard a preacher say in the past that, that, that this sea into which God has cast your sins, he's also put up a sign that says no fishing. Right? That, that, that says your sins stay in the ocean. You don't get to come and in, in, in your doubt and in your despair, right, right, remember the guilt of your sin and therefore forget the hesed love, the unfailing love of God. No, Micah wants you to believe that these things are not just true in the abstract, true about God theologically, but that they are true personally. He has pardoned your sin. He has broken the power of your sin through faith in Jesus Christ. He is a faithful covenant-keeping God for you. And it's only as we believe this truth and apply it to our own hearts that we can ever follow God rightly. Let me read this quote from Calvin that, that puts it so beautifully. He says this, that religion may have firm roots in our hearts. This must be the first thing in our faith, knowing that God will ever be reconciled to us. For except we be fully persuaded as to his mercy, no true religion will ever flourish in us. Because what is said in Psalm 30 is forever true. There is forgiveness with you, therefore you are feared. And then he writes this, Hence the fear of God, true worship of him, depend upon a perception of his goodness and favor. For we cannot from the heart worship God. There will be no genuine religion in us, except this persuasion be really and deeply seated in our hearts that he is ever ready to forgive whenever we flee to him. First John 1, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. First John 2 verse 1 says, brothers, I'm writing these things to you so that you won't sin, right? Lest anyone has a, a question about that. No, I don't want you to sin, but you're going to sin. And if you do sin, first John 2, 2, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins. God has forgiven your sins through Jesus, through his incarnate life, through his death, through his resurrection. Do you have that assurance of faith that is the foundation of all true religion? There is forgiveness with you, therefore you are feared. We walk in good works because we know that no matter how we live, we are reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. We are right with him and therefore we want to please him, not the other way around. 
We don't know if we're right with him, and so we better try as hard as we can to please him because we might not get there. No, you are there. You are accepted by God. You are justified. You are clean. You are washed. Now live like it. Assurance. Well, finally, announcement. If our God is indeed, hear the rhetorical there? Of course he is. If he is the incomparable God of pardoning grace and power and promise keeping, if there is no other God like him, then how can we keep this good news to ourselves? Go and tell it on the mountains that Jesus Christ is born, that Jesus Christ has lived, that Jesus Christ has died for sinners, that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, that there is no other God but the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, who has given us the Holy Spirit, that we might see our sin, that we might see this glorious salvation and know it and experience, not just here in our head intellectually, but deep within our hearts, seated deep within, that we might live for the Lord. Brothers and sisters, my prayer is that you would meditate on these words, not just tonight for 30 minutes, but that this week, this coming month, these, this coming year, that these words be emblazoned upon your hearts, that you would know that there is no God like God. He is the incomparable God. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for giving us these words. Thank you, Lord, for being who you are. May we believe that you are this, even to us, as we have rested our souls in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Lord, I pray for your people here this evening. Lord, that the fact that they are here, seated under the word, that it would change everything for them, even this week. Lord, that they would be able to rest in who you are to them in Christ, that they would be filled with gratitude and praise, that they would be filled with assurance, that they would be filled with a desire to tell everyone they meet that Jesus Christ alone is the Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen.